A lot of jokes have been made about our gospel reading today. <clears throat> I saw a cartoon just a couple of weeks ago of Mary scolding Jesus as a toddler, telling him to get in the bathtub that instant. And Jesus is standing on the water with his arms folded. Perhaps there is a little bit of comedy in the story after all. It's as if Jesus knew that Peter couldn't resist the chance to try out his sea legs on the water. I can imagine Jesus having a little bit of a twinkle in his eye when he says to him, Sure, Peter, I'd love a little company on my walk. The laughs can perhaps keep coming in the way that the story has sometimes been interpreted. For much of the past two or three hundred years, people have been caught up in the question of whether Jesus really walked on the water. So we get some who seek to debunk the story with explanations that can sound almost silly. Jesus was standing on a log in the water, and that's why it looked like he was walking. Or um, he was there was a, a, a partially, mostly submerged sandbar under the water near the ship, near the boat, and that's what they were seeing. Um, we could all come up with different theories. My own theory is it was maybe a uh, paddleboard. They have paddleboards now, you know. But maybe that's what he's doing. Now, in a, in a kind of reaction or hyper-reaction maybe, others have defended the miracle and said we just have to accept it on faith and not really think about it and remember that when we face the storms of life, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, everything's fine. Now, both of those approaches have a little bit of a problem because they take this story and they tie it up in a nice little bow and if there's anything we should know about the Gospels, it's this. If reading them does not challenge us and challenge our day-to-day -day sense about the world, then we have not read them rightly. So here's an alternative I want to propose, if you promise not to laugh at this one. <clears throat> and give me a minute to explain it. But the story of Jesus walking on the water and of Peter's flawed attempt to join him may be at some level a, a retelling or a reenactment of Israel's crossing of the Red Sea when God liberated the Israelites from bondage under the Pharaoh and led them and really almost had to drag them out of Egypt. And the reason I say this is that the context of the Gospel story is rife with images that evoke the, the Exodus narrative. If you start at the beginning of the chapter, and Terry talked about this in her sermon last week, Jesus faced concerns about this tyrannical figure, Herod, who beheaded John the Baptist in a moment of royal exuberance, not unlike what Pharaoh could well have done. In another parallel, the very next story, Jesus feeding the 5,000 is an account that's clearly shaped to remind us of God's provision of manna in the wilderness. And so those are the stories that immediately precede this one, stories that grow out of that, those traditions about the Exodus. So now we have Jesus walking on the water. In the same way that Moses and the Israelites passed through the waters at night amidst wind and waves, Jesus also passes through the dark waters in the storm, inviting us, you might say, 
to join him in our own departure from Egypt and all that it represents. The clincher is in Peter's reaction, which is so much like that of the Israelites. For the Israelites were their own biggest enemies. The most enduring obstacle to their liberation was themselves. If you go back to the story of the Exodus, you'll see that even though they cried out in their suffering, they still resisted Moses' leadership. In Egypt, they complained that Moses was stirring up trouble for them. Before Moses came along, they had to make bricks. After he came and started talking with the Pharaoh, they had to make bricks without straw. No wonder they were reluctant at first. Their situation was already bad. Now it had gotten worse. Better to stay with the bad than risk the worse, right? And then once they got out and were in the wilderness, they repeatedly told Moses, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here. So there they are, having witnessed all the plagues and the deliverance at sea, all these signs, and they are still struggling to embrace and envision the liberation that God seeks to give them. For all their suffering, they nevertheless felt safer in their enslavement than in the hands of the God who was drawing them into life as a liberated people. Now back to the Gospel narrative, Peter embodies the struggle of all of Israel. He has faith, but it is partial and sporadic. The story may end with the disciples acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, and that's fine, but we know they're fickle. They end up abandoning Jesus at the cross, too. Like Israel, they wanted to hedge their bets. Indeed, for those disciples who stayed on the boat, it was, a lot, it was easy for them to give Jesus lip service when they never got off the boat. So perhaps what this story asks us to do is to search ourselves for the ways in which we may fail to embrace our own liberation from God, in God. Pharaoh no longer threatens us. The storm is there, but it's not our enemy. In fact, it may provide the very path of our deliverance. For the real miracle at issue in this narrative is not whether Jesus could walk on top of the water like a two-legged water bug, but whether Peter and the disciples will embrace the gift of God's reign of compassion and justice and do it so completely that they will pass through the dark waters with Jesus to get there. Their problem, our problem, is not some sort of intellectual doubt, but it's the deeper doubt that goes to the core of our existence. Will we stay where we are fearing worse, or will we find our true selves on the water in the very midst of the storm? The miracle of faith is one that only God can perform. That's true. But it's one that God performs only through our own embrace of it. So it's tough. This walking on water thing, this passing through the waters business, it's a big step. It's hard to say what it looks like maybe uh, in each of our lives, and what it means about how we must live. 
But if the gospel story is any indication, we can say what it feels like. It feels something like going overboard. It feels like letting go, letting go of our efforts to justify ourselves, our defenses, and placing ourselves in the hands of a God whom we do not control, but whose purpose for us is freedom and love. Last week, Terry told you about her childhood fascination with Evil Knievel in a sermon she should probably title The Gospel According to Evil Knievel. <clears throat> uh, what she didn't tell you is what I think is the reason she had him on her mind. The day before she wrote that sermon, uh, she and I went zip lining outside of Eureka Springs. So I know that's what she was thinking about. And maybe you've heard of this, uh, well, they, they tout it as an extreme sport uh, for. Um, Maybe it's tailor-made for daredevils like your priest. <clears throat> Not so much maybe for her risk-averse but uh, dutiful husband. Her, uh, I was reluctant until you know she told me, well, Dave, you just need to quit acting twice your age. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so there we go. Now the way the way this zip lining thing works, and some of you have done this, I've, I've heard from you. Uh, the first thing you do is you sign this waiver that says you know good and well that you may die that day, <laughs> and and that's the very first thing you do. <clears throat> you even do that before you pay the fee. I mean, that's the first thing, and then they strap you in this har harness. And we, we, you know, you take you out into the mountains, and we, uh, you push off this platform dangling from a metal wire that stretches. The longest one we did is stretched 2,000 feet, almost 2,000 feet across this Ozark Mountain Gorge. And the wire you're dangling from is attached to these uh, rollers that run along the top of the wire, and you hold your hands uh, above the rollers to apply this brake. Uh, and you don't apply it until they signal for you at the very end to apply your brake. And the one thing that you don't do is you don't try to slide very slowly across this wire <laughs> on the very mistaken view that it will feel safer that way. No, if, uh, if you do that, you'll just end up stranded in the middle. So the only way to go is just to push off and zip along as fast as you can until you're told to start braking. There's not a middle way in this zip lining. You, you have to just give yourself over to it completely. And the same was true for Peter, who must keep walking toward Jesus. The same was true for Israel, who must pass through the waters and truly leave the security of Egypt behind. And so too for us, if we want to live in this kingdom of love that Jesus has proclaimed, if we want to sit at, the, at His table, we can't treat our compassion for others as something that we should conserve and dole out in tiny portions to make it last. If it is love, then it cannot be hedged and calculated and conserved. It can only exist in the giving of it full throttle, all out, at risk of loss sometimes, 
in the trust that the God of love will grant more in abundance. No, we, we can't ease our way across a zip line. We can't walk across the water with one foot in the boat. And we can't. We absolutely cannot grow in faith when we hold our love in clenched hands. We have to give ourselves away. We have to pass through the waters. We have to trust in the liberating miracle of divine love. Amen.